This podcast is brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Keep Joy on air by becoming a member, a subscriber or donate. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community. This is The Informer, Australia's only LGBTIQ plus national news and current affairs show. Proudly sponsored by KHQ Lawyers. Passionate about being the best. I had the pleasure last month of speaking with Denton Callender, who is a researcher at the Kirby Institute at the University of New South Wales and Columbia University in New York. Denton's work sort of looks at where LGBTIQA plus people live and how that impacts their health outcomes. You've done quite a bit of interesting research, um, largely around the queer community. Is that correct? Yeah, so most of my research is based within um, an assessment of sexual health and well-being. And naturally, these things tend to intersect with, as you say, queer communities. So um, some of my earlier work is with gay and bisexual men, cisgender gay and bisexual men. Um, I've done a lot of research with sex workers. And increasingly, we're trying to better understand the health and well-being of trans and gender diverse people. You were doing some things around PrEP in Sydney, it looks like. Yeah, so I was involved with a lot of the large PrEP implementation studies that were conducted in Australia over the past few years. And at the moment, I'm working on a few PrEP-focused cohorts here in the United States that really seek to understand the different kinds of forces that um, make it available or not to different groups of people who could really benefit from its use. Right. So we're talking about really obvious things like finance or, you know, money and access to a healthcare provider and then other levels beyond that? Yeah, so our group here at Columbia is mainly interested in uh, social factors, that you know, your social and sexual networks, the ways in which these things, you know, make it more or less likely for you to access different kinds of healthcare. And we also uh, do quite a bit of research studying neighborhood level and environmental factors, so mm-hmm. where you live and how you move through the world. And what's your latest research on? Well, the study that we're talking about today, if I'm not mistaken, is trying to figure out ways in which we can identify how, um, in this case, gay and lesbian men and women settle. So, you know, there's been a lot of writing and research over the past few decades around the concept of gayberhoods. And we know that queer people do tend to have unique settlement patterns in response to a wide range of uh, factors, but they tend to center in certain parts of each country or jurisdiction, you know, as a new way of forming um, community in in the literal sense that's based around where they live and why they choose to live there. So for neighborhoods, we're talking about places like the Castro in San Francisco or uh, Surrey Hills in Sydney um, and like Boys Town in Chicago. Um, What sort of things have you been finding? Well, the examples you just cited, Castro, Surrey Hills, Darlinghurst, um, these are really common and well-known examples. And and there's been a reasonable amount of geographic research over the past few years that's that's sought to examine and identify these neighborhoods, mainly within uh, dense urban settings like Sydney, Melbourne, Mm -hmm. or San Francisco. But the reason that we undertook this particular study was not to reproduce that existing work, but because we know, um, 
at least anecdotally, that queer people live in all parts of the world. And often they will form communities in places that we didn't, we maybe wouldn't necessarily have expected or places that are sort of outside of the traditional neighborhoods uh, that we've discussed. So this is great. In some ways it reflects um, increasing normalization of queer lifestyles. People feel comfortable living in different parts. Um, but it also in some cases reflects the ongoing gentrification of, of urban areas that make it more difficult for queer people to live um, where you know their ancestors, so to speak, might have. Um, it's just increasingly expensive to live in many of those parts of the world. So as we think about the way in which to deliver services or how to understand uh, public health and well-being, it's really important that we take a bigger picture look at you know, where are queer people living? Where where do they form community? And that's what this study was about, moving outside of urban areas to try to get a, a picture of really every corner of Australia. Yeah. Um, and what sort of things did you find? Well, we did this study by um, combining different sorts, different sources of data, including the Australian census. So the Australian census, as you might know, already collects information on what we call same gender partnered households. So if you and your husband are living in the same household at the time of the census, the census would collect that in an anonymous de-identified format. But of course, that's limited to people who are cohabitating with their partners. And so we really were looking for a way to extend beyond that useful, but somewhat limited information. And so through doing that, the first thing that we found really clearly was you can pretty much find um, examples of gay men and lesbian women living in all parts of the country. So even well outside of the sort of traditional neighborhoods that we would associate with queer life in Australia. And that is, it was in itself rather interesting, but also that um, some other kind of interesting offshoots uh, at, that resulted through that method was we found, for example, that uh, lesbian women are more likely to be cohabitating with their partners than gay men, um, that people living outside of major cities are more likely to live in the same household as their same gender partner, and that uh, adult lesbian women are more likely than their gay male peers to live outside of major cities. So even through just this process that had a sp uh, very specific aim, we're already starting to get a sense of the um, I guess what you call it, the demographic diversity in terms of settlement within these different uh, populations. Speaking geographically, were there any areas that were sort of hotspots in regional and rural Australia? Yeah, so, uh, you know, I was, I, I lived in Australia. I've lived in Australia for a long time and I'm very familiar with the sort of traditional spaces, but I was really surprised to see just how many um, particularly rural and regional areas there were with pretty high proportions of the adult population who um, we identified as gay or lesbian. So, um, for example, the two most uh, prevalent areas for lesbian women in particular were found not in Merrickville or any part of Melbourne, but were found in regional communities um, in Victoria. So they were Bumbera and Johnsonville with an estimated prevalence of 13% of the adult women there being identified as, as lesbian. So these are, are reasonably small communities. You know, we're talking in some cases only a few hundred people, 
but of those few hundred people, quite a sizable proportion um, were lesbian women. And similarly, there, there are parts of Tasmania that, you know, you find kind of high prevalences as well, which is in some ways unexpected, but in other ways, it kind of makes sense, right? There's nothing saying that you have to, as a queer person, live in Darlinghurst. And, but if you know that your friends are moving to these different places, or there's something about these places that attracts you, the possibility of them attracting other people exists as well. Other people who are like you, I should say. And so with this research, what can people do with it? Well, there's actually a lot of things that can be done. And part of why I did this was really for my own purposes. So I do a lot of uh, research looking, as I said, at sexual health and well-being, trying to understand patterns of infection, how we can deliver services. And I was increasingly limited by my ability to conceptualize geography in that space because we just didn't have the kind of um, postcode level estimates that resulted from this study. So already um, my colleagues and I are using them in our work in Australia to better understand, as I say, how infection is spread, you know? So if you, if you can, for example, say, I estimate that there are this many people, this many adult gay men living in this particular postcode, and you know the number of new HIV infections, which we do have through other data sets in, the Uni- in Australia, if you know that, then you can get a, a, a more accurate estimate of ever before of you know, the prevalence of HIV in that area. Similarly, if you're looking for uh, a community in, let's say, a regional part of the state to introduce a new sexual health service or a new, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Basically, a new service that targets gay men and lesbian women, this is the kind of data that you can use to do that in really meaningful ways. And this whole study kind of arose and was funded in part from an ongoing project in New South Wales, which is aiming to do exactly that, to optimize um, the prevention and management of HIV in lots of diverse ways. And I, you know, I, I do, I've been working on a lot of stuff over the past year. And this was the one that people kept checking in and saying, is it done? <laughs> is it published yet? Because they, they really want to start making use of it in their own analyses, but also in more practical ways. You know, where are the people that we need to target with the services that can help them the most? Uh, Yesterday, I interviewed a woman named Deb Parkinson, who's a specialist in LGBTIQA plus responses to emergencies and bushfires. And she identified that there's some really big gaps with emergency services, and they don't necessarily take into account, say, at an evacuation center, you know, someone's gender identity or, you know, that this person's their partner um, or using really gendered language or stereotypical gender roles, you know, women should do this, men should do that, you know, be strong, that kind of stuff. And um, yeah, so they use that to um, do training. So, you know, they could use potentially information like what you have to really target those areas and say, you've got you know, a population here that's bigger than you think. Definitely, definitely. And, you know, the the major limitation of this particular study is because of the data available to us, we were only able to look at adult gay men and lesbian women. So for me, that's an important first step. But as you say, there are lots of other um, communities and populations that might fall under the queer umbrella who could also benefit from this kind of work. So one of the things I'm really hoping 
is that this method or these methodologies can be continued to apply to different groups of people so that we can better understand, for example, the distribution of transgender and gender diverse people. Going back to the data source and the census, how did you identify the people? Was it that it was like men who were living with men as a partner? I, I don't remember. It's been a while since I filled one out. Yeah, I guess it would have been 2016. And there was a lot of talk around that time about how the census might be improved to better collect information on sexual orientation and gender. And a lot of those, a lot of recommendations that were made by major health um, advocacy groups and health experts were more or less ignored. But since 2011, if I'm not mistaken, the census has included an option to capture same gender partnered households. So that's really the the cornerstone of this whole analysis. You know, at the time of the census, were you living in the same house as your same gender partner? And as I said, that's one really useful piece of information from which we can extrapolate outward. And the good news is that the the Australian Bureau of Statistics has a really beautiful and um, publicly accessible tool for building what we'd call tables around those kind of data. So I could, and you could right now, if you wanted to uh, sign up for an account, go in and build a table, which is what we did around by postcode, how many households were male, male partnered, female, female partnered. And so that kind of stratification by postcode isn't possible really in any other data set. And it's what makes the census really powerful and also allowed us to build these kind of postcode level estimates. Although I'm really excited that this research has been published and, and I hope that it's of use to other people, the need for it would have been totally removed if the Australian um, Bureau of Statistics had incorporated the recommendations around how to best collect information on sexual orientation and gender. So because we can do nothing about trans and gender diverse people, um, to me, that's a really major limitation. If we had that kind of information, we could be doing these kinds of analyses. Similarly, if they had collected information on sexual orientation as recommended, this kind of work wouldn't even be possible. Or sorry, it wouldn't even be necessary. Um, and the same could be said in, in other countries. So um, as part of my work in the United States, I will be applying this method using their census in the same way. But again, there's this ongoing tension between um, advocates, statisticians, and policymakers around the inclusion of this kind of information. And if it would just be done as recommended by best evidence in, and supported by many statisticians, then we wouldn't have to do all this extra work. I wanted to talk about your research that you did um, amongst men who have sex with men who are African-American in Chicago and in, I believe, the, the South in the U.S., um, could you describe that research and tell me a little bit about what you found? Sure. So at the moment, across four sites in the United States, we're conducting a, a cohort study uh, focused on Black, gay and bisexual, and other men who have sex with men. And as is often the case, um, men of color in the United States experience disproportionate rates of HIV. So trying to understand the factors that put them at risk of HIV, that undermine their prevention and management efforts is really, really important. I think some estimates suggest that 
you know, one out of every two gay black men in the United States will get HIV by the time they die. So that's that's astronomical, right? And that's really actually unheard of in most places in in the in, that have a developed health system. And the same is actually true of transgender women of color. You know, some prevalence estimates suggest it's up to 62% among these women. So really problematic stuff that requires uh, a really detailed look at, as I say, the factors that quote unquote place them at risk. And, and I put quotes around that because we're really trying to move away from an individual assessment of risk here and start looking at the social and structural factors that are in play. So we're trying to understand how people's network formation, the kinds of friends that they have, the way in which they engage with them, the kinds of sexual partners they have, the way in which they engage with them, how these things influence um, infection risk, but also how their environments, the places where they live or are forced to live by circumstance, how these things influence their health. And we know we have there's such a growing body of evidence around this that where you live impacts your health and well-being, but the specific mechanisms of that effect are, are very mysterious in many ways. So we're delving into these topics from a lot of different directions, but really with a, a, a multi-level approach that tries to take the focus off the individual in some sense to say, okay, what are the structural factors in play here? And what did you find? Well, that, um, th that study in particular, which is known as N2, Networks and Neighborhoods, it's still ongoing. So we are still in the process of recruiting the, the baseline of participants, the group of people who will be in this study uh, for at least a year or two. And uh, so the, the analysis of those data is still ongoing, but somewhat unsurprisingly, at least in the first at the first look, we're seeing a lot of things like the characteristics of the neighborhoods in which someone lives, really having a marked influence on their likelihood of accessing, let's say, HIV prevention services. So you, if you live in an area that's high crime, that's incredibly noisy, that you yourself feel nervous being in, your ability to access services is diminished. At least that, that is what's suggested through our data. And what we're doing now is providing participants with um, global positioning system trackers, so GPS trackers, so that we can move beyond focusing on their home neighborhood to look at the different kinds of environments um, to which they're exposed on an everyday basis. Because, you know, I live in one neighborhood, but I travel through several others to get to work every day. I socialize in some others. And all of these different spaces play a big part in my health and well-being, but that's not really very well known. So there's a lot of geospatial research in health at the moment, but much of it has really only focused on where someone lives. And that's the kind of thing we're hoping to move beyond with this study. But as I say, we're just starting to get those data now and the analysis will be starting in the next few months. What does noise play as a factor? <laughs> noise, is, uh, noise is an interesting one that I brought up um, because we've just done, so we have that project N2 and we're doing a very similar one here in New York City that's just focused on um, Black, Latina and Asian transgender women. And I bring that up because we've just done an analysis looking at sleep quality and trying to understand how um, someone's sleep, the amount they get, the quality of it affects their health. And this is actually quite a new area of study in public health is to really think about sleep as a mechanism to 
not just improved health, but um, improved health behaviors. So, I mean, I don't think anyone's too shocked by the idea that if you're not sleeping well, if you're not getting a good night's sleep constantly, then not only do you just feel poor and is your health diminished, but your ability to say, remember to take your medication is diminished or to get to your doctor appointment as scheduled. And noise, particularly in dense urban environments, is a huge part of that. So it might be one of the explanations for why you're sleeping so poorly. And I guess that's what I mean about trying to take a bigger picture look at this, because it's not always a clear this and then that, but often it's this happens and then that it results in that, and then that is what has a flow on effect. Um, in our case, we're looking specifically at HIV, but I'm sure you could imagine much broader ramifications across all areas of health. Are you looking at things like uh, the amount of green space as well, or whether an area is a food desert or not? Yeah, so that is actually one of the more interesting areas of geospatial health research that's come out in the last few years. And there's there's actually some fascinating ongoing trials in New Orleans and Louisiana amongst other places that say, okay, if we fix up, we have this dilapidated lot. If we fix it up, does this improve people's lives? Does it make, you know, does it have marked influences? So, and, and there's some evidence to suggest that it does in certain ways. So what we are curious about is um, the access by way, the access that people have to those kinds of spaces. And, and then as you say, can this actually improve their health and well-being in ways that we observe? So we give people GPS trackers and we see that this participant is going to Central Park every other day and spending several hours there. Well, this participant barely ever leaves, um, you know, a really dense part of Brooklyn that's really only concrete with no trees around. You know, is there a difference between the health of those two people, and can we link it to that exposure to green space? So that's the kind of work that we're that we're doing at the moment. And you know, Sydney and Melbourne, and actually all, most cities in Australia are really lucky in that they have this proliferation of green spaces, and it's the natural life is a really big part of of urban life in in that part of the world. But, you know, we have these mega cities like New York, like Shanghai, even London to a certain extent, where that's just not the same necessarily. So if we can provide evidence for the the value of those spaces, I think that'll go a long way. But as I say, that's that's well, that's built into our analysis. We haven't started looking at it specifically yet. Kind of a cool little study. But um, as I say, I think it's real value comes is yet to come. You know, I'm excited to see how people make use of it. And the good news is the, the method we've designed can be updated with new censuses. Um, I always want to say sensei, but people, which is the correct plural, but I always get people call me a wanker when I say that. Um, and also new forms of, of data around cohabitation. And, and as I said, we can do this in other countries that collect the same kind of data. So I think there is applicability to it in many different ways and over time, but how people make use of it, that's what I'm really excited to see. And that was Denton Callender from the Kirby Institute at the University of New South Wales and Columbia University in New York City, speaking to me in January. This is The Informer on Joy 94.9. Thanks for listening to another Joy podcast brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organization, Joy. Help us keep Joy on air. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community.